From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we're excited to share the second episode of a new series on boards, hosted by Fritjof Lund, a senior partner in our Oslo office and leader of our board services work. The first episode discussed sustainability. Today's topic, cybersecurity, is not a topic that has historically been a significant focus for board members, but recently that has changed. And today, Fritjof speaks with two experts about how boards of directors can help ensure that their organizations are prepared for and protected from cyber risks. John Noble is the former director of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre and a non-executive director at the UK's NHS Digital. Wolf Richter is a partner in our Berlin office who helps chief information officers capture the benefits and mitigate the risks of tech-enabled transformation. Fritjof, it's my pleasure to turn things over to you. Sean, thank you very much, and thanks both to John and Wolf for joining us today. Cybersecurity has, uh, of course, been a topic on the board agenda for quite some time. For example, in McKinsey's latest global board survey, our participants rated cybersecurity as a top four priority for the board's agenda. However, when we asked them to indicate what are the key challenges for the uh, organization going forward, only roughly one-fifth of the respondents mentioned cybersecurity. So there seems to be a bit of a um, a divergence uh, of attitudes. John, how does this resonate with you? I mean, do boards take cybersecurity sufficiently seriously? Well, boards understand cybersecurity is a pressing problem. They may not, though, understand how that problem relates to them and their own particular vulnerabilities and risks. And Wolf, you have probably seen this uh, quite quite a bit in your work with uh, organizations. Now, what kind of organizations typically consider cyber a higher priority versus maybe the ones who are not doing that? That has changed dramatically over the last couple of months. While originally it was mainly the regulated organizations, particularly the banks and the insurance companies, then also utilities and public sector entities and the critical national infrastructure, In the aftermath of the WannaCry attack a couple of years back, um, a lot of other industries realized that even without being on the high target list, they could fall victim to a cyber attack. Uh, And so retailers, um, in particular manufacturing companies, uh, started really becoming a lot more aware of the vulnerabilities that uh, digitization and cyber attacks posed uh, to the operations. Now, since the uh, work from home um, has become the new normal in the uh, COVID environment, And the massive increase of ransomware attacks that we are seeing, almost every company has become aware how massively vulnerable they are in an environment where the majority of their business is being conducted through online channels and where also the majority of their employees are interacting with each other um, over digital means. As you say, Wolf, there's been a reported increase in uh, cyber attacks uh, also over the last, uh, let's say, year or, or half a year. John, what do you think is is really happening? I mean, what's driving this increase in uh, in the cyber attacks? I think there's two things which are driving it. One is a, a change in the business model for the people who are carrying out these attacks. It really is being industrialised. 
um, and we're seeing vulnerabilities being identified by one set of groupings and those then um, being shared with criminal groups who can make use of ransomware as a service. So they can, in effect, lease the ransomware to use and they will then, um, in exchange for a percentage of the profits, will then employ that against victims. That's allowed for a massive increase in both the volume of attack and, uh, as, as Wolf has pulled out, across many sectors and many countries, but it's also allowed for a, an increase in the sophistication of attacks so that ransomware is no longer just about um, impacting on the availability of your systems. It also can result in the release of sensitive data. And, and, and Wolf, do you see that companies are really, are they prepared to handle this uh, rising threat? Well, it's a mixed bag. Um, I mean, now it really becomes apparent who has started to think about the threat of cybersecurity systematically and uh, who has just recently woken up and is starting to improvise. On the one hand side, we've seen just a massive change um, and a massive acceleration uh, in digitization. So all of a sudden, within a few weeks, companies have completely moved their operations to the cloud or um, granted remote access to their employees. Well, needless to say, very few of them actually had the time to think through um, their cybersecurity concept. On the other side, you see those that have been spending the last couple of years preparing, identifying the critical assets, identifying the critical processes, testing the procedures also with their employees, having emergency plans, uh, fallback scenarios, and those investments have now really paid out. What approach should boards of directors take to be as prepared as possible, especially for the ones which are probably less prepared uh, in the current context? Well, the board of directors and the executive leadership team need to engage on a collaborative but critical conversation. And the, the board of directors' ultimate responsibility is to make sure that the executive team has a plan, is prepared, is starting to prepare the organization, not only the team, but the whole organization for the eventuality of an attack. It's not a question of if the attack is going to happen and how to prevent it. The real question is, when is it going to come and is the organization prepared to detect it, to stop it, to mitigate the effects and then continue operating and getting back to the normal way of operating as quickly as possible? And what I want to add is, you know, I think we build on what Wolf said is that um, cybersecurity is a problem for the whole organization. The approach you, you must not take is just to leave it to the CIO and to the technical team to resolve. Um, and whether it's in advance of an incident or during an incident, it really does need that challenge that Wolf has brought out um, as you decide um, how you manage the tensions between usability, um, security and, of course, cost. And that's very much where we need the board to be involved, um, challenging and testing processes. Let's maybe move from preparedness maybe towards what do you do when the incident actually happens? And I guess, uh, John, you, you've seen that very close in uh, in many situations. First of all, what is the sequence of events and, and how? what should the board do? What What is their role relative to management? Well, I think one of the things I do want to bring about those going back to preparedness is there's a very big difference in how an organization reacts if it's exercised in advance of the attack. 
if it has run through the processes of understanding the attack and then dealing with it. Where the board can really help is to, um, if an organisation is going to demonstrate that it's in control, communications is absolutely essential. There needs to be developed a single version of the truth so that stakeholders can be briefed and everybody understands both within and uh, beyond the organisation how the incident is being handled. And the board can have a crucial role there in supporting the executive team as they go through. And of course, the executive team, as I saw from the the, 800 odd um, incidents that we're involved in dealing with when I was at National Cyber Security Centre, the executive teams are under tremendous pressure and they need the board's support and guidance through that. Any examples that you could uh, to shed some light on what has a board and also management team done, which is really, let's say, best practice handling? I don't know whether it would count as best practice, but I wanted to go back to that WannaCry incident that Wolf talked about um, early in, in May 2017. And it had, of course, a very, very big impact on the UK National Health Service, where I'm a, now a non-executive um, director. And what we saw was that this was a an incident which which went across and hit multiple trusts. And the really important thing then at the board level was to be able to go and bring people together and make sure that we were communicating with a vast number of different stakeholders across the um, health and um, um, care system. I can't say that during WannaCry that the NHS um, got it right, but it certainly learnt a tremendous amount of lessons, which again is something that the board really needs to focus on. And so that then meant going into the pandemic, we'd be much more prepared, understanding the vulnerabilities that we we are carrying and asking the right questions around how those are being mitigated. But I, and I do want to emphasise that piece around um, working with stakeholders and often regulators, of course, are um, involved in that process as a piece where the um, board really can add a tremendous amount of value. Maybe on the other side, uh, any caveats that you have seen that either boards or management teams enter into? Well, I can generalise to say the reaction will go badly if it is just left to the CIO and the technical team to deal with the incident. They have the critical role in resolving the incident, but the consequences that go beyond the immediate damage, those are very much, say, for the whole organisation to, to, to deal with. Um, there will be the reputational issues, there will be the legal issues, and of course, very importantly, there will be the operational interest um, issues and the impact on, on business. And so uh, in terms of where it goes badly, it's where you don't see the whole of the senior management team coming together to, to deal with the incident. I mean, an incident just elevates and accelerates a lot of the tensions that exist already within an organization. Uh, so a couple of situations that I've seen where things did not go um, as well as they could have were particular in distributed and um, vastly decentralized organizations where there was no central leadership team or where it was not clear who in the crisis would actually be in the lead. And then if people are not used to working together in a day-to-day basis to establish this trust in a crisis situation, it's extremely difficult. So that very easily the finger pointing starts and people are just rather starting to fight each other instead of fighting the enemy that is attacking them from the outside. 
And I think that underlines the importance of exercising in advance and running through the scenarios that are most likely to affect you where you're where you're most vulnerable so you can go and test those tensions in advance of having to do it for real and it's a really great way of course for the board of understanding the risk that they are that they are carrying how do you build the cyber capabilities in an organization and, and maybe to you Wolf since uh, you've been working with many organizations uh, across industries uh, on on cyber topics and building cyber capabilities what uh, in your view would be let's say the three key areas that boards should really focus on so first and foremost it's about the awareness of the whole leadership team what we see very often is a concerned board member, um, and then the concerned CIO, as John just outlined, who has been tasked with uh, managing um, cybersecurity. But a vast amount of ignorance uh, in between. Uh, So one of the first and foremost important steps is that there is a shared sense of urgency within the executive leadership team and the level below. It's not a sense of panic. It's a sense of responsibility and of awareness that this is not something that is only happening to others, but that this is something that's an existential threat to the organization in the digital world. The second then is to build up the concepts, the tools. So this is really the hard, non-glamorous work. It's nothing to do with folks in black hoodies or building up a new cybersecurity incubator. This is really going through and checking which are the critical assets, which are the critical processes, are there processes and procedures in place. And during that phase, not to overdo it. So a lot of companies in the second phase then really tend to be so inward focused that they again forgot that the threat is coming from the outside. And it's also very important to balance the amount of controls, the amount of red tape that you're putting in place, not to stifle the innovation in the company, which is then also giving the cybersecurity effort a poor reputation. And so finding this right balance is most important, but that's also why it's also important that it's led by the business and by people with the business sense and not so much just with a control or a technology mindset. And that then leads to the third part, which is building capabilities. This is not only an IT issue. This is an issue that affects the whole company. This affects the digitization effort, but it also affects the process manager. It affects the process architect. It affects marketing and sales when they're negotiating with their customers. And there are more and more customers also asking about security features, in particular in the um, engineering and high-tech industries. So making sure that these Folks are all educated that they know who to turn to for more information. This is the third step when really cybersecurity becomes from a small part of the organization into a joint capability that is turning the whole organization into a more cyber resilient one. Just talk about one particular example and to to bring out that process that we'll set out. So with ransomware, one of the big risks is around legacy equipment. And almost every organization will have legacy um, equipment and certainly a problem within healthcare. And that represents a real vulnerability that we are seeing attackers um, uh, take advantage of. We therefore have to treat that legacy equipment as untrustworthy and we have to put in place controls to help manage it. But only some of those controls will be technical. There needs to be an engagement between the business 
and the the IT team to see whether they can be in, in some of the risk can be managed in some other way. Is that equipment really needed? Um, can it be segmented? Um, maybe the answer is actually to move off that legacy equipment and to migrate to the cloud, which clearly will have investment implications. But I think that's an example, as I say, one area which is really pressing at the moment, um, which is not just about technology. It has got business and it has also got financial implications. Can I ask you, I mean, if I'm a chair or a board director and I'm concerned about cybersecurity, how do I best understand the level of, uh, let's say, maturity uh, on cyber in the organization? how well prepared we actually are. There are a couple of uh, ways to measure this. Ideally, an organization would be capable of measuring the value at risk, so the business value at risk from a given um, incident. However, most companies are already um, are not uh, at the stage of maturity that they can do this just for lack of transparency of the basics or lack um, of a trained, reliable model to translate the business impact um, to collate the business impact and the incident. So many companies turn into what is called a maturity-based approach, where they're just looking at some outside benchmarks to take a look at which of their um, controls are at a certain level of maturity. Well, this is still better than not measuring or not managing cybersecurity at all. That sometimes leads to um, a wrong incentive, just investing into building up more controls. Therefore, what I would do if I was um, the member of the, the board, I would actually go in and ask specific questions about what is it that the cybersecurity team and the executive leadership team currently focuses their attention on? Do they have identified specific parts of the organization, specific assets that they really focus the energy on? Have they identified specific groups of employees that are particularly vulnerable, for example, field service agents, you know, the customer service agents? Um, do they know how many people have privileged user rights? So the most important thing is to ask a lot of specific questions and then from the answers, you can see if the board has conceptually understood it or if they have really operationalized their strategy. Because we're living in an environment of scarce resources. And the executive leadership team needs to balance investments in cybersecurity with investments in, in all other parts of the business. And the more specific they are in targeting some initiatives and targeting specific systems, infrastructures, processes, and, and people, the better I would feel as a board of director uh, to actually see that somebody has spent some really real time thinking about how to actually build in the organization. And I think that's so important. We can't just rely on some KPIs. You know, for, for example, you know, what percentage of our service has been, um, have been um, updated? It, it was 97.1% um, this month. It was 96.8% the month before. What does that mean? It's, you've got to have that engagement. You've got to have that sense of challenge. I think the other way that the, the board can get some further assurance is by... Um, ensuring that there has been third-party challenge. So, for example, penetration testing of critical assets. When was the last penetration test carried out? What did it reveal? Um, what, what recommendations have been taken forward? So 
making use of third parties in, in that way can be really helpful. But before you do that, you've got to, as, as we've said, you've got to identify what you care about most, um, what's absolutely um, critical and needs to be protected. Are there any, let's say, blind alleys or, uh, let, let's say, investments that you, you see uh, companies are making that really doesn't have an effect? The cybersecurity market is still rather immature at times, and there will be um, lots of people trying to sell you boxes or um, thing else which will fix all of your cybersecurity problem. There is no single solution for, for cybersecurity. It needs to have a, um, a range of different measures which are being put in place. So absolutely there needs to be um, caution. But I think the most effective measures are those which tackle the absolute basics the, the things which, which make companies vulnerable. And these are around, we talked about some of them already, they are around things like security updates, um, they are around authentication, how you access the systems, they are around how you how you configure those systems, they're about getting rid of um, legacy and unsupported equipment. So if you can tackle the basics and put your investment into those, that's probably going to be the best use of the available funding. I like your point, John, about the asymmetry of investments. What I've seen fairly often is that companies are ready to do one-time investments in CapEx, but they shy away from actually building up the OPEX, which is the people making use of the boxes, as you called it. So we've investigated uh, one insurance carrier, which had a beautiful security operating uh, center, all the licenses, um, all the major centers in place, but they lack the staff to actually make it run 24-7. We identified, for example, five different licenses that they um, paid for intelligence threats information services. Really, really good investment, actually, but you need to have somebody who is actually processing the information. So we figured out that they had one guy which was part-time tasked to actually read this and then translate this and share this with the rest of the organization. Of course, it didn't happen. So these are examples about asymmetric um, investments where some parts, companies are over-investing, but they don't really think about end-to-end how to make it effective and how to actually bring it into the day-to-day decision-making of the organization. And to build on that, I saw a um, a case study recently given by one of the leading companies in this area around how their detection system, um, using artificial intelligence, had been able to to flag up a compromise of a system. What then followed was the fact that there had been nobody to actually interpret this data to actually be able to do anything. So the compromise happened. So there was all of that investment um, in a very expensive and sophisticated detection system, but nobody to actually take any action and to prevent the damage to the client. Maybe pivoting towards the capabilities within the board itself. Maybe, John, I mean, you, you've, you've seen a lot of boards um, uh, through your career. How strong cyber skills do you believe that major companies usually have in the board? And you know, where are the main gaps that you see? So I think it's it is going back to the comments that was made at the beginning. It's it's mixed. In some companies, there can be a lot of cyber experience and, of course, a lot of digital experience which can be um, built upon. 
I do think it's essential that there is somebody on the board who has got some cybersecurity experience in a non-executive director role to go and help to provide a focus for the challenge for the um, for the CIO and for um, the CISO. And they can also help with, for example, board development um, events and exercising to build up the overall knowledge within within the board of, of cybersecurity. Because there is a danger that you can end up just leaving it with one person, and that's absolutely not the answer. We need the whole of the board to engage, to be bringing their, their experience of other areas to be able to go and help the board to, to provide the right challenge in this space. Well, we need to demystify cybersecurity and having at least one cyber literate board member helps tremendously. Right? The normal reaction in a board which has low technical skills and also low cybersecurity skills is like, ooh, cyber. Now, that's not a topic for us. Let's call the, the CISO or the CIO and then they should explain to us what is happening. Cybersecurity is also not rocket science. It is at the end, somebody who is tinkering with your processes, with your systems, with your assets and with your data. And that this is in the midst of the duty of a board to prevent harm from the organization. This realization usually comes a lot easier if you have one guy who simply says, guys, don't panic. It's a cyber attack. This is not good, but it's our job to make sure that the organization as such is prepared and we don't have like this one guru, this one wizard that's then going to fix all of our problems. I very much recognize that description that Wolf gave of, you know, um, in the, the organizations which are not cyber literate, the, the idea of just leaving this to the CIO and the CISO. And of course, that's not helpful for, for the CIO and the CISO. They want to have that engagement. They want to share some of the risks and to expose some of the really critical issues which which they want the board to look at, not least because it often involves investment. It, it involves making some difficult judgments between cost, usability and security, as I said earlier. And you need the board to be engaged in that, especially if there's going to be large sums of money involved. John, you mentioned that even having one cyber literate board director could help also to, uh, let's say, build the capabilities of the entire board. How do you build more broadly the board capabilities, whether you have one or more, let's say, cyber savvy directors? So the way that I've, I've seen it done, to say, is, is um, organizing an exercise as a both a teaching opportunity as well as a, an important opportunity to, to understand the specific risks which the, the organization is, is faced. To give the board some context, a briefing on the threat, um, and then look at um, how best-in-class companies are addressing these. And this is, I think, a really useful way to... To, to build on that and to avoid just leaving it to one person for the whole of the board to, to, to understand that. I think this is exactly right, John. And let me give you one example. We have for a while inserted cyber exercises in the Silicon Valley trips that we did with board of directors because that is something special, something people memorize. They're there in the valley looking at all the high-tech companies. And then all of a sudden we play for three hours the dark side of digitization and kind of demonstrate it to them what could happen if you don't pay attention uh, to the risks that are coming with all the opportunities that the new technology is providing. And so actually getting their attention at the moment where they're doing something special outside of their normal duties has proven tremendously effective uh, to leave something memorable, but at the same time also to leave them with something that they can hopefully use 
than in the um, eventual moment that the attack actually is happening. If we move to the um, the future, what, what's ahead? I think Wolf, you mentioned at the at the very start the acceleration of the attacks, also due to more exposure during the pandemic. What are the new threats that you see coming within cybersecurity over the coming years? We will continuously see a massive professionalization as more and more organized crime is discovering cybersecurity as a very profitable area of activity. You also need to expect all of the attackers to be equipment almost military-grade weapons Um, the large military organizations have actually invested quite massively in building those weapons. And we've seen um, more than one event where one of these military-grade attack kits actually leaked out and became available on the darknet. And all of a sudden, that is like placing machine guns in the hands of um, of burglars around the corner. So the big difference is these machine guns are still tremendously hard um, to control and they are extremely easy to replicate. This is simply code. These are, <laughs> these are coding tools uh, that you can just copy and, and share uh, with others, which on the other hand side is also an opportunity because a lot of the attacks that we are seeing in particular in ransomware, as um, John has described before, their goal is to make money with that. So at some stage, there is a negotiation, there is a payment, a ransom that's being asked, and that then actually combines the special cyber crime with the good old crime that police and uh, also private investigators have quite some experience in dealing with uh, from from prior times. But then also on the technology side, there is a lot happening. Um, I already mentioned the shift to the cloud um, that has been massively accelerated um, by the work from home environment. Um, But that poses a whole new set of risks. While by and large, the infrastructures provided by the large-scale cloud providers are by default a lot more secure than the ones that most of the companies can actually operate in their own data centers. It is still naive to believe that all of a sudden the cloud service provider is going to take care of all your security needs. On the contrary, uh, we, we are seeing a massive increase of breaches on cloud-hosted applications for lack of, miscon- uh, for lack of con- uh, proper configuration of those cloud environments. Um, And again, this is not rocket science. It just requires a complete new set of engineering skills that your IT department that's now managing the cloud environments need to acquire. The cloud, as you say, Wolf, it's it's a great opportunity in particular to move off legacy infrastructure with all of the risks that it represents. But as you brought out, issues such as authentication, how you access those, remain your responsibility. Um, And I think it's very important that the board understands that however secure those those um, cloud service providers are, you are still holding a great deal of the risk and um, you do need to ensure that you have got the right skills to be able to successfully carry out that 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 transition to 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 the cloud otherwise as we'll support out, you are going to get basic configuration problems and sadly, we have seen some very, very large-scale breaches as a result of some of these these basics being being got wrong, and you know a lot of this is down to people simply not understanding the cloud and how and how it works. Any advice to board directors or chairs? How should they stay on top of the game continuously? So first of all, there needs to be a budget of um, on cybersecurity um, in any digitization program. 
Yeah? Within the large amounts that companies, rightly so, are spending on digitization, they need to look at this also as an opportunity to drive digitization in a secure manner. So legacy replacement, as John just mentioned, is an important part of that because the older the infrastructure, the more difficult it is um, to keep it uh, secure as um, the skills of the attackers are advancing. However, at the same time, haphazard digitization is just creating the legacy of the future already today. Uh, and so companies need to ensure that they are using best practices in terms of secure coding, secure agile, secure DevOps, to just mention a couple of these uh, tech words, um, to do this right now. We talk about shifting security left, which means not leaving it to the security team to fix the vulnerabilities after they've been created, but to really make sure that across the whole life cycle, there is a security mindset um, and the security skills to actually build something that is a lot better um, than what we have uh, at the moment. I don't think we should believe it's inevitable that, that companies are going to be, to be compromised. There are definitely um, opportunities here to go and get this right. And they are around recognizing that there is a real threat, that we are building digital economies at a national level, or we're building them um, for a, a company on something which is inherently unsafe, the internet. Um, we, met, we mitigate that by making taking a, a series of, of measures. Um, we've just got to, at a board level, ensure that those are being challenged. And we are looking at these from a worst case as well as a best case scenario. And we're prepared to make some compromises in order to, ins uh, to ensure that we really are building a secure infrastructure to work on. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. A transcript of today's conversation will also be made available on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page on McKinsey.com, where you may also easily explore, filter, and search for previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at McKinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on McKinsey.com, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us via our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.